This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor. So for us, we, we utilize those stores as the opportunity to further connect and either educate or expose. We use our social media platform the same way, whether that's Suicide Prevention Week, you know, Mental Health Care Month, you know, whatever it may be. Our goal is to use our platform to create change within our environment. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs, the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Today, I'm talking with Matt LaFon, president and GM of the Americas for Athletes Foot. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. Well, I am an old shoe dog beginning at Nunbush's Brass Boot Division probably generations or decades ago. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about your footwear journey? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I started my career with a company called Goodies Family Clothing. I don't know if you uh, can remember that. It goes back quite, quite a bit. Um, yeah, I was there. I started off in uh, buying, planning. Then I uh, went to Saxing, part of Sac Fifth Avenue, and, and managed essentially the private brands for the men's contemporary kind of business. And then, uh, yeah, I entered kind of in my athletic side, you know, footwear experience at Dick's Sporting Goods, um, you know, kind of started there at uh, the beginning, you know, probably doing, a, uh, you know, probably 20, 30 million dollars. And, you know, five years later, um, about a billion dollars in private brand for Dick's Sporting Goods, where I oversaw the private brand uh, and footwear and apparel, including brands like Nike ACG at the time that they had licensed from you know, Nike and uh, Reebok, which was licensed for the apparels, you know, and some of the other kind of licensed and exclusive brands for Dicks. And then uh, went to the sports authority and ran all a private brand, you know, uh, not just like kind of the apparel and footwear, ping pong balls, bicycles, sleds, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, moved in the branded side where I was the head of global merchandising for kids footwear, accessories, uh, you know, those little charms, as well as in and out licensing. And then I was with Global Brands Group and ABG for uh, a little over a year running the Spider brand. Um, and uh, then I was at footwear for about five years with Puma, where I was uh, vice president of sports style, which is kind of the fashion division. And uh, everything from, you know, the kiss of the world to, you know, the streetwear guys like, you know, the athlete's foot and uh, Jimmy Jazz and Snipes and all that, that and uh, as well as dot com. And yeah, and then I did a quick stint at, you know, Payless uh, Shoe Source, where I kind of was part of that team that kind of relaunched the brand. Not quite the, the 4,000 stores they once had, but, you know, eight, 900 stores, fairly large base. And and then uh, jumped at, back in pretty aggressively in the streetwear market uh, with the athletes footwear. I am now as the head of uh, Americas as president and general manager. Yeah, interesting. And so you have this whole background in private brand, everything from ping pong balls to footwear. What's the difference between a branded experience and private label if you were to, to compare the two? Yeah, I kind of bucket, you know, call it the exclusive brands in the two buckets. One is a private label and one as the private brand, you know, um, private label to me is really, um, you know, entry level opening price point items, you know, commodity items um, that you're trying to drive at a, at a pretty, pretty significant value and, 
and driving a lot of volume through that. So things of like core basic t-shirts, socks, um, you know, kind of a more, I would say, mainstream mass marketed, you know, product categories. Um, and then the private label. So I'll kind of use Dick Sporting as an example, right? So you got their DSG line they currently have, which I would consider a private label. Um, and then they've been, you know, developing other brands like Adidas Baseball, believe it or not, is directly owned, sourced and operated through Dick Sporting Goods. So they source it, they design it, all that kind of stuff. And so it's a branded where they put, you know, marketing spend and uh, business development funds kind of behind to drive the, the marketing initiatives. So, yeah, I spent my time on this really developed kind of those exclusive brands like the Reebok and, you know, ACG, as well as kind of the more opening price point business as well to that are all based on, you know, lower price points you know, with the mentality of drive, you know, significant volume. Okay. In a recent article, you talked about growth plans for your franchisees. So franchisees must be an important part of the model, not just corporate stores. Why is that? Yeah, you know, so, you know, Athlete's Foot is definitely a, uh, a different, you know, model for sure. You know, there's, uh, if you think about, you know, kind of the career path within the, you know, the, uh, the footwear landscape and, you know, industry, there's not too many opportunities these days to really become a store owner, right? You know, you got obviously corporate career paths with the brands and, um, you know, some of the retailers, but obviously given kind of the environment over the past couple of years and, you know, really having the brands can control their distribution channels, you know, eliminate, you know, some distribution points, uh, for example, especially in really that mom and pop single store owners. So, you know, we really offer uh, a unique experience to where if you have, you know, a strong business acumen in retail and you're a, a sneaker you know, lover and enthusiast, um, that there is a, you know, entry point, you know, to get into this business and actually open a store. Um, and, you know, something that we're really proud of, too, is that we also have an initiative around START, which stands for Strategic African-American Retail Track. Um, and it's really about getting minorities, specifically African-Americans, um, you know, to, to more or less call it have skin in the game um, on a industry that, you know, they've they've driven culturally. Right. Um, to now give them the opportunity to be a you know part of a, a bigger company, but to be also a locally owned small business owner. And, uh, you know, I'd say that's really our secret sauce. You know, if you kind of look at the retail environment today, you know, you have, you know, pretty much these big corporate you know, companies, not that we're small, but, you know, 550, 600 stores is, you know, decent sized business. But um, as I mentioned, like the really the secret sauce is that, you know, we have franchise partners that are from these communities. So, for example, in Atlanta or Raleigh, North Carolina or Chicago, these are, you know, guys that grew up in this area. Um, that in most cases, their average lifespan of a franchisees is really around 20 to 25 years. So you have, um, you know, local business owners that are driving the local community, the engagement. You know, in some circumstances, they're servicing the grandfather, the son, the grandchildren. And, uh, you know, I always talk about this a lot with the brands because that really differentiates our business model from, you know, a lot of the bigger you know, corporate guys that we have that ability to be ingrained in that local community um, and when we really determine to open a store, we don't go into it with the expectations like, hey, we just want to sell a lot of shoes and you know, to have it to be 100% transactional. Our goal is to focus on neighborhoods where we can uplift the communities. Um, you know, we can, you know, we're focused on underserved communities that we can go into these locations and help, you know, really drive uh, neighborhoods that our consumers can be proud of, um, that they can shop our stores with ease and consistency. Um, that the local assortment or the assortment in that location is very specifically focused on who that consumer is and, and really, I think, separates us apart from the rest of the guys within the pack. 
And how do you market that to the local areas? Because, I mean, um, getting that right person to partner in your brand takes a lot, right? Especially when it comes down to franchise qualifying for SBA loans and business acumen and location and all of those kind of things. How do you go about recruiting people in those lower surge areas? Yeah, you know, it's it's challenging. You have a, uh, you know, to put it in perspective, we have probably 400 people that applied to the start, you know, program specifically. And, um, you know, we, we definitely are looking for, you know, that kind of call it, you know, young and up and coming entrepreneur, um, you know, that they, you know, have might have worked as a store manager for, you know, call it another retailer in the footwear space, um, that they understand how to own and operate, you know, the, the platform. And they also have that passion for footwear, right? And it makes it quite challenging to believe it or not, because you have a lot of, you know, a lot of individuals that might love, you know, shoes, but they don't have that strong business acumen. Or they're, you know, kind of just getting started and they don't have quite that nest egg. And although we we help support, you know, that kind of financial um, you know, opportunity for them and helping them get, you know, low interest rate loans, you know, potentially grants, depending on, you know, um, if it's a minority, you know, applicant, et cetera. But it definitely makes it challenging because okay. you really got to find that. Well, you know, that I think that's great. And it's important because I think an awful lot of money is spent on trying to develop communities, but I think the partnership with a franchise where you have a business owner who, as your point, has skin in the game is always going to lead to, well, it should, you know, as long as you got owner operators, right? You're not looking to get someone who says, oh, I'll just have anyone in there. You need someone who really wants to be in that job with you, right? Exactly. It kind of goes back to passion, but making sure that they're good at what that passion is, right? Uh, We found some really strong, you know, really strong uh, current franchisees. I mean, you know, guys that are are super aggressive about, you know, obviously driving the businesses, but have, you know, really strong affinities to their local communities and ultimately really want to, you know, want to drive that, you know, uplifted community experience with uh, with the consumer. So um, and that's where a lot of our marketing efforts go. You know, we really focus in on hyper local uh, connectivity, you know, making sure that we got the right product. Um, you know, that we, uh, we have a whole impact board that we just announced, you know, within the past 30 days, you know, these are the likes of, you know, um, Robert Golden, you know, former Pittsburgh Sealer captain and now CEO of Charter Golden Schools or Academy. Um, you know, Danielle Gathers, the first African-American female, you know, head of uh, uh, student body president at MIT, you know, Sharice um, Thornhill Goldson, who's head of seed at Adidas, that really, you know, these individuals are really focused in on, you know, impact, but, you know, how do we can take, you know, our local communities and uplift them, you know, whether that's through philanthropy, you know, mentoring programs. So believe it or not, about a quarter of our marketing spend actually goes directly back into the community. No smoke and mirrors where it's an activation tied to, you know, philanthropic you know, opportunity, but it's really direct money that goes back to uplift those communities. Nice. So you're competing with vendors through direct-to-consumer initiatives like, let's face it, Nike. I mean, how does a a brick-and-mortar brand that carries multiple brands, how do you coexist and grow your sales and not be looking over your shoulder all the time? Yeah, it definitely makes it it challenging for for sure. And I I think that, look, the the brands are going to do what they want to do. I mean, obviously, the the DTC business is... Uh, it's, it's, it's profitable. You know, there's advantages and disadvantages and kind of living on both sides of the table. You know, you're on the branded side, you sell product to a retailer more or less you wipe your hands clean, you know, of that inventory. 
Um, you know, don't get me wrong. There's always, you know, gross margin give back and RTVs and things along those natures. But at the end of the day, it's a very clean model. You know, you're you're pretty much you know passing that on to the the third party. Um, and it, it always sounds like a good idea until, you know, you have one bad season of, of retail and, you know, all of a sudden it kind of crashes and then you're in this kind of domino effect for the next couple of years. So it'll certainly be interesting to see what the brands, you know, do with it. But certainly as a brand, you know, being you know part of a brand before, the brands should control their own narrative to a certain degree. Um, you know, they're looking for retail partners, especially their highly influential retail partners, which I would consider, you know, the athletes, but one of those to really storytell for them and give that kind of call premium consumer experience in brick and mortar. Um, and we certainly go in places where you're not going to see a Nike store for the most part. And, you know, don't get me wrong, they have their Nike local, you know, hubs in certain markets. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we are really looking for underserved communities. We're not, you know, looking to put up in some cases a Taj Mahal, you know, in the local neighborhoods. Um, you know, most of the stores that we have are anywhere from 1,500 to 2,200 square foot. Um, you know, the strategy is not to put those in malls. It's really to put them on, you know, the local streets to where the consumer can walk to it. So we're always going to be in places that, you know, I would say Nike probably, at least within the near future, is not, you know, uh, you know willing to go. Um, but then there's a certain level of responsibility when you do do that, when you put a store in the neighborhood. And what does that truly mean? It's a lot different than putting a store in Times Square and you have you know, tourists and multiple different level peoples. So you're putting these into these underserved communities with the intent to you know, improve the quality of life around them. So although we say that you know, we're here to drive shoes, which we are, we're, we're here to run a profitable business model, I would say a very close second is really making sure that it's not a transaction that's really focused on, you know, again, uplifting our consumers and neighborhood. Well, to your point, Nike had pulled back so many of their wholesale accounts because uh, they didn't like the way their brand was being represented, which frankly, that's what I think most brands would say. It's like, we're not just going to give you the package if our merchandise is either always going to be discounted or it's going to be displayed uh, anything less than what we would do in our own stores, right? So they're they're looking for what you add to the brand as well, which is always always the the goal, I think, of everybody's. And, you know, you're in charge of a lot of people and a lot of stores and a lot of initiatives. And what steps do you take to make sure that your team members are all heard? Yeah, definitely. That's so critical. And I would say in general, given kind of the consumer and, and obviously retail landscape, I mean, it's probably the most dynamic. I've seen it in you know 25 years of doing this for sure. You know, you've got you know, certainly inflation and gas prices increasing, you know, social you know, challenges within the last two years, COVID, wars overseas. Um, and yeah, it's been challenging. I think that, you know, certainly from an overall business model, you know, the you kind of the catchphrase nowadays is to be nimble, right? Um, you know, there's certainly things that we can control, but there's things we can't control like supply chain. Um, you know, to really within our organization, I would, I would say we run a very flat organization. Um, I would say everybody has a voice within the organization, no matter if you are a, an assistant, a receptionist, or, you know, head of marketing or product. Um, you know, we really try to make very quick decisions, but we also try to become, you know, laser focused. Um, when you see kind of our, our overall kind of call it holistic goals, we really try to focus on three things per quarter that we can get right. Um, and I say generally speaking, where especially when you got such a dynamic environment, is that you can't have this, you know, laundry list of things you got to accomplish, you know, um, and peanut butter spread it. You got to be laser focused on the key initiative you got right. And, you know, where we're focused is in-store experience. 
you know, upgrading our stores to TAF 3.0, which is a whole new kind of omni-channel digital approach and community. I call it hub versus really stores. Um, you know, the second is digital transformation. And, you know, the third is really um, our merchandising and product hyper-localization strategy. But, you know, to me, when you, you know, you uh, cascade goals that are a little bit too broad, it, you know, what do you tackle first? Uh, so we spent a lot of time talking about what is, you know, the, what is the juice worth the squeeze? You know, do we have enough resources? Um, is it a process problem? Is it a resource problem? Is it a strategy problem? And then we really focus bi-quarterly on three, call it big initiatives, um, and then make sure that we're driving those in our weekly and monthly touch bases. But less is more these days for sure. Yeah, that's true. You know, I was CMO of uh, It's a Grand Coffee franchise decades ago, and we had, uh, I think I took it from a startup to 135 locations. And uh, that's why I got out of franchising, frankly. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. So what advice do you have for somebody in the franchise world to have good partners? What does it take for you? Yeah, I would say that, you know, it definitely makes it complex, right? Because, you know, just in the U.S. alone, um, with call it, uh, you know, the, the 50 stores, 60 stores with the islands, you know, we're looking at 13 different partners, you know, some of them might have one or two stores, some of them might have 20. And, uh, you know, a lot of my role is, is a setting process, tone, marketing investments, budget spending, et cetera. But it's also making sure we're setting up a process to where we're bringing in the partners at the right, you know, the, the right call it stage gates. Um, to review product, to understand their local environment. So I think communication is certainly critical, you know, as to having open, direct conversations. And, um, you know, from my point of view, um, I'm pretty direct for sure. You know, I think it kind of cuts out the fat of situations. I think you'll find with most of the guys that own their own stores, they're pretty direct. I mean, these are not, you know, these are definitely alpha type of A male and females, um, you know, they love shoes, they love their community, but they are there to win, you know, so you get that. But, uh, you know, you also have to manage that as well, too. You know, you got to get the best of those guys and you got to obviously um, identify blind spots, too. But, you know, we try to keep the communication going. We uh, we have a very robust process and merchandising marketing driven strategy. So I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to franchise. Right. Well, you know, you got certain guardrails around that. Like, it's not like you got you guys at McDonald's that are saying, hey, I want to change the menu and I want to do the big mick or I want to do this. You know, they work within a certain amount of framework and their goal is to, you know, to make sure that they've got the right tools to drive their business and that we've got, you know, specific strategies by market, but we're also in a way putting a little bit of guardrails around it. So there, there's consistency and the consumer gets that kind of, uh, you know, same experience no matter if they're in Atlanta or Chicago or New Orleans. Well, that's, I think, the great lesson. The brands that were franchised before you stood the test of time and people realized like, oh, that's what it is to be a McDonald's, which is why they get a million dollars if you want to, to buy one or Chick-fil-A or typically, I think, in fast food. But when it comes to retail, uh, I think there's just an awful lot of room still to go. You know, I always say, unless you've got proven systems that help them out, uh, most franchisees always question what that percentage they're giving to you every month. So if you can give them more value and keep them from saying, but they're not letting me do this and this and this, then you're halfway there. Would you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that, look, if you're any kind of business owner, you're always going to be questioning whatever is in your overhead, whether that's royalty, you know, marketing, development funds, whatever. But yeah, and, and what we try to do to the partners well, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, they've given us a lot of trust. You know, we substantially increase our marketing funds, you know, uh, this fiscal year. 
And in some cases, when you go to a franchisee that may have 20 doors and you say, hey, this is going to be additional $400,000 in marketing spend, you know, you really got to develop a very robust program, you know, a complete strategy. You know, where's the ROI? How are you going to pay for this? You know, if, if things go wrong, what's contingency plan B, C, and D, you know? Um, but to have a, uh, you know, a business partner to, to, in some cases, willing to give up that type of money, you got to make sure that you're counting every nickel and dime. It, um, and it's a symbiotic relationship, right? Their success is their success. If they don't drive sales, we don't drive royalty. We don't create, you know, key marketing campaigns and customer demand and engagement opportunities. What tools do they have? You know, from a merchandising lens, how do we create, you know, the right product in the right place at the right time? Um, so to me, yeah, I, I would totally agree with you. I think that it's just a, you know, a very process driven kind of um, environment, lots of communications that in some cases does slow it down a little bit versus a, you know, complete direct to consumer model where you're just making decisions, you know, in a, in a kind of a vacuum. But, you know, we certainly, uh, we have a lot of talented franchisees with a lot of great, you know, resources and experience from different market. And we really try to kind of you know, suck the marrow out of that. Nice. Well, before we continue, we love our loyal listeners. So if you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating after today's episode, I would appreciate it. And we'll return after this word from SalesRx online retail sales training. As the pandemic restrictions have ended, customers are being drawn back to brick and mortar stores. And online sales, well, they're declining. What do you need to convert more lookers to buyers and help those who came in to buy just one item to take home more? Well, you train your crew how to engage a stranger and make the sale. Now, that's gotten harder since the pandemic, but there's an easy solution. SalesRx, my online retail sales training program, which is in use on four continents with hundreds and thousands of learners. It's a smart way to boost conversions and add-ons. Just go to salesrx.com to learn more. Now, back to our program. And we're back with Mac Lafon, president and GM of the Americas for the Athletes Foot. Now, the company was founded in uh, 1971, rooted in sneaker culture back when I was in junior high. And yet you said you plan to double down on apparel over the next three years. So why is that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, and, uh, you know, Athletes Foot was the really first cross-branded, you know, retailer of, of footwear, right? And um, obviously huge growth projections and obviously the, the uh, paradigm shift in the franchising model. Um, but for us, where I see the biggest opportunity really specific in the U.S. Um, and I would say globally, too, if you really look at the you know, EMA stores and the rest of the geographic locations, is we've always been you know, really driven heavily by footwear. Um, whereas we find our consumer, though, is looking for multiple categories, whether that's apparel, accessories, um, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and we also have a consumer that's very driven by, you know, head to toe, you know, storytelling, right? Um, and then what we found is that, you know, when we looked at our, our kind of, you know, retail uh, box or square footage of our average store, is that we had a lot of, call it white space within the stores to be able to increase that capacity of apparel. Um, so we slowly started to test more apparel, increase our penetration. Historically, we've been roughly around about 14%. Um, penetration within apparel. We're trying to grow that to roughly 20 to 25. Um, and really the goal is, is that, um, you know, number one, apparel obviously turns a little bit faster than footwear. Um, you know, generally speaking, it's higher IMU um, and it should be incremental business. That consumer that's coming in the store looking for, you know, a pair of sneakers 
is also looking for a cool t-shirt, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't be selling a pair of socks for every person that comes in the door that buys a pair of shoes. Um, but also giving the, you know, bringing in some of these kind of, um, you know, these brands that are having kind of heated moments, right, to, you know, from a fashion lens to get that consumer in the store. And uh, you can create kind of a different narrative with apparel too. You know, footwear is it's on a wall, it's on a shelf space with apparel. You can now cross merchandise it. You can tell the consumer what's fashionable, what's hot. Um, you know, really kind of take that narrative to the next level and, and create a unique environment where you can cross sell multiple things. And versus transactionally selling footwear, you're creating really, you're selling a lifestyle. Um, so we definitely think that there's opportunity on there. And, and certainly um, as we launch our, our first 3.0 in April, we'll have, we'll essentially be doubling the capacity of apparel. Wow. Well, that's the whole thing is if retail doesn't move from transaction to relationship, I think it's going to be a really hard future because I think an awful lot of employees are selling from their own wallets. I think they can't imagine spending, you know, the most money for sneakers, jacket, doesn't matter what it is. And so they start at the bottom and they give a minimal, you know, advice and service in a lot of retail times. And then the problem is that the very thing that if I just wanted to buy that one sneaker, I could have done it online. There's a million places I could have buy and probably cheaper. But the fact that I walked into your store probably means there's something more that I want. You know, the example I always use is uh, finding an HP 64 printer cartridge. Uh, I'm not going down to Staples to have them take their little sacred scrunchie and unlock the $35 cartridges, you know, cabinet. But uh, if I go into that store, if Staples believes that I'm just going in there for that $35 cartridge, then they're probably missing out because we go into a store to discover, we go online to buy. And that's really, I think, the difference, right? A hundred percent. And totally, totally agree. And, I, you know, this channel is slightly different, you know, from call it, you know, mainstream in the sense that, you know, when you're serving underserved communities, typically e-commerce tends to be less of a penetration level, right? Imagine getting a Nike sneaker box within an underserved community. More or less shrinkage stuff, that box is gone within five minutes. So you have a lot of customers that are still shopping um, in brick and mortar. A lot of them are still shopping with cash only. Um, so we try to create this environment to where, you know, and when I say stores, we, again, I go back to like, we really call them community hubs. So for example, we might have an after school kids program on a Friday afternoon, a tutor comes in and talk to, you know, kids about helping them with their homework. Um, we might have a town hall in that local community on the Saturday. We might have a, a sneaker customizer that may come in or, or call it a minority, you know, a, a small business owner that's, you know, teaching, you know, uh, you know, community lessons about financing, right? So our goal is to get them in, obviously, with the right product, but to also to be uh, able to, you know, uh, procure and train our associates to talk the talk, right? Like these are enthusiasts of sneakers. They know what's trending. You know, they're there to talk shop. Um, but they're, it, it's to walk away with more than just looking for a shoe, right? And so that's the goal is like, to your point, I think that that's the, that's the, what the future looks like. If you can't engage with your consumer above and beyond just offering product, then you're dead in the water. I have to stop you there. You have, you have to go back. So you have a town hall in one of your community centers slash stores. What does that mean? Well, for when I say like town hall, so for example, I'll use, uh, we just had Robert Golden that came to speak in Savannah to where we brought in basically uh, Savannah uh, Saves Youth. And we gave a very powerful kind of inspirational lecture of what his career looked like. What were the challenges to a bunch of, um, you know, underserved foster kids, right? You know, we're utilizing that store to, you know, kind of use as, 
you know, teaching kids the right lesson, you know, mentorship programs, um, you know, especially where our, our stores are, like I mentioned, where they're, you know, the average, you know, uh, family income is about forty-five to sixty thousand dollars per year. Um, you know, where a lot of these kids, uh, you know, they don't have the mentorship, you know, that they need to to kind of strive and, and to be successful in life. So for us, we we utilize those stores as the opportunity to further connect and either educate or expose. Um, we use our social media platform the same way, whether that's Suicide Prevention Week, you know, Mental Health Care Month, you know, whatever it may be. Our goal is to use our platform to create change within our environment. That's pretty amazing. We should have started with that, man. That was pretty. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I really was like, holy crap! Oh, that's that's what I we're most proud of, honestly speaking. You know, a lot of people in this company could be doing other things. And we all have kind of an infinity around sneakers and kind of the footwear culture. But I would say like, you know, um, if you ask all of our executives, you know, probably the number one reason outside of just wanting to be in this business is that we do want to get back. You know, our, our model is we're 98%, you know, franchisees, we're 98% of them are minorities. And then our corporate and store structure, we're 92% African-American, both corporately and in the stores. So for us, we understand the challenges of our, our not only our consumer, but frankly, our associates that are, are in those same communities. And at the end of the day, yes, we want to be profitable and, you know, we want to you know, have a successful business. But, um, you know, we want to drive change. So what happened when Black Lives Matter uh, came on the scene? Yeah, you know, that, that, really, a big... um, that really started the kind of the expedition of the whole start you know, program, you know, really with, uh, you know, the, the kind of brainchild of Darius Billings, who are, is our head of marketing at the athlete's foot, you know, really sat in a room, um, you know, post George Floyd and said, you know, this needs to change. Like this is a industry that is driven by not only just minorities, but, you know, African-Americans. And, you know, it, it significantly, not only does it drive uh, a lot of the sales, but it, it drives the culture. And it's our responsibility as retailers to be more than just a shoe seller. And that's really where that you know, strategy with the start franchising program came from and to really focus in on minorities as we were already kind of minority driven, but really focusing on African-Americans where, you know, they've given so much to this industry. And, and frankly speaking, they haven't gotten a lot back, uh, not just from retailers, but from brands. And, you know, that's our mission to change that. Well, that's an amazing story. My dad was a very big social justice warrior in the 60s. And so he marched with King and some other things. So I think it is up to us to make the world a better place. You know, I uh, I believe we can change the, I believe we change the world by people working and shopping and retail. You've taken it to another level and to look at all the, how all these opportunities have come together. And we're coming to the end of our time. I just have a couple more questions for you. How's the way you thought about retail changed from when you worked at Payless to now with Athlete's Foot? Yeah, definitely. I would say that, you know, Payless is kind of a different model, but at the end of the day, they still do serve an underserved community. And, and a lot of the reasons I you know, decided to leave the branded side of it is was part of being, I, I was actually that kid, right, that had the four stripe instead of the three stripe. And, you know, and, and we make it hard enough to begin with, um, you know, with peer pressure, et cetera, to have, you know, sneakers is such an important part of your outfit. So, you know, I do like the fact that we are still serving a somewhat similar consumer, you know, certainly, you know, slightly different demos for sure. Um, but I would say that the, how it's changed is that, you know, more so really just within the past two years in general, like people are not looking any longer, especially millennials and, you know, Gen Z's. They're not looking for just, you know, corporations where they can buy good product. They're interested in, 
you know, how are they socially responsible? Are they sustainable? What do they stand for? Um, and people have choices today and they're not willing to settle anymore. And they, nor should they, frankly speaking, like, you know, we should be, you know, living by what their word is, you know, and, and uh, I think we create, you know, a, a platform for local small business owners to be successful, which is another dynamic to the, you know, the, the bigger kind of, you know, call it financial environment and, and, and platform. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day that, you know, we're really trying to, you know, drive this thing to the next level, create a unique experience for their engagement parts. And it's all going to be driven by, to your point, you know, making change. And I know this sounds naive, but I am truly believe that boots on the ground running where people have conversations about product, especially culturally driven product like sneakers are. I really do believe change can be made by doing the right things. And. You know, I think we all did a better job at that as retailers and brands and partnered a little bit more. And I've said this to many other retailers. I'd be happy to go in it with Foot Locker or whoever else on any kind of philanthropic program. And we do cross over in a lot of places. Like, you know, I would love to work with more, you know, more retailers changing that game. Like kids should not have to wait in line for shoes and be worried about their life anymore. Um, you know, they should walk into an environment and, and know what that brand stands for. And uh, I definitely think within the next five years, if you do not stand for something more than just transactional, you know, selling, then um, you might as well just close shop. Wow. Great words, man. Well, I'm almost embarrassed to ask you to say one more thing, but the name of the podcast is Tell Me Something Good About Retail. <laughs> and a pretty positive part about how we can change the world. But uh, what else would you add to that? Tell me something good about retail. You know, I, I got to tell you, like, uh, I love retail. If you want to learn something about somebody, just sit there and watch how they shop. Watch what people do and the joy of buying something. And the, you know, almost a therapeutic in a way to going out, finding a product, researching it, have conversations and going to a place where they know you. Right. That, you know, you're you're more than just a number that you're part of that community. And. I just love the conversations. I mean, I'll go into, I travel and market all the time. I'm like, even with COVID, like I am the guy that sits and watches and has conversations and pontificates on why people are, are going right versus left and you know, what conversations, but it is so exciting to see. I mean, you, you, you know, again, you know, that kind of very, you know, detailed conversations at retail and, you know, making those connections is just, you know, you can have a customer life within a 10 minute conversation. Only happens face-to-face -face in community centers, or as I call them, stores. Thanks very much for joining me today, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I had a great time. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Matt. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com.